Welcome to The Value of Knowing, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of legal complexity and opportunity on the vibrant continent of Africa. Stay tuned for expert insights and a closer look at the legal landscape in Africa, where Bowman's helps its clients to manage legal complexity and unlock opportunity. That's The Value of Knowing. I'm your host, uh, Michael Avery, financial journalist, columnist, and uh, um, multimedia guy. Let's introduce our panelists today. First up, we've got Joe Mitchell Marie, uh, Deloitte Southern Africa, Africa Turnaround and Restructuring Leader. Uh, Joe's a well recognized subject matter expert in the industry and will be a familiar face, frequently speaking at local and uh, Africa related conferences. Uh, she recently re-entered the advisory domain at Deloitte and uh, is armed with 19 years of financial services industry experience. Don't want to give too much of your uh, age away here, Joe, but uh, you certainly bring significant lender-side perspective to the service offering, having led teams in a, a leading local South African bank. And as we know, if you owe the bank a million, it's your problem. If you owe the bank a billion, well, it's the bank's problem as well. Uh, also a UK chartered accountant by qualification and uh, serving as a board member of Saripa, the South African Restructuring and Insolvency Practitioners Association. Joe was also recently awarded her Insol Fellow designation. And then uh, we've got Stefan Smith, who's a managing director in the restructuring advisory practice at Kroll, based in Johannesburg. Uh, Stefan leverages more than 25 years of work experience uh, working uh, in the UK and indeed here in South Africa more recently. He's advised lenders and companies across the region of sub-Saharan Africa for over 14 years on a range of very complex restructuring and reorganization matters. I think many will be familiar with the uh, the Stair-Kinnikor Theatres uh, matter, which was the largest cinema chain in South Africa, yeah. to come out of the COVID uh, period in uh, a very um, notable business rescue success. Uh, he's also the official receiver of Mayfair Holdings and Mayfair Speculators and served as a trustee for matters or the Competition Commission as well. So, Stefan, great to have you with us. Also around the table, we've got Joyce Mbuyu, who is uh, a partner in the Bowman's uh, Kenya office. Uh, she specializes in financing, capital markets, uh, insolvency, restructuring, and corporate and commercial law, and is a qualified English solicitor, uh, as well as an advocate of the High Court of Kenya as well, and a member of the Law Society of Kenya and uh, the Law Society of England and Wales. So Joyce, uh, I've got to say Jumbo, uh, thanks for joining us today. And then um, out of uh, South Africa, we've got Toby Jordan, a partner and specialist in business rescue, restructuring and insolvency at uh, Bowman's. And uh, Toby's been on my show a couple of times, a very straight shooter when it comes to the world of business rescue, restructuring and uh, insolvency. Uh, so Toby, great to see you again and joined by your colleague, uh, Juliet de Hutton, co-head of restructuring at Bowman's. Also very well known and respected for her technical proficiency and depth of experience, uh, Juliet's advised on some of South Africa's most challenging insolvency and business rescue cases in various sectors, aviation, retail, commercial, property, and also draws on uh, some 20 years experience advising clients in this space. So with that, I don't know how many of you have read The Devil's Financial Dictionary by Jason Zvee. He's a, a great columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and he produced this book, which is very tongue-in-cheek, but he has this to say about forecasting. It's uh, the attempt to predict the unknowable by measuring 
be irrelevant. And it's a task that employs most people on Wall Street. And uh, I just think uh, it shows you that you know we've got to put all caveats uh, on the table here. When you try and predict the future, there's uh, a great uh, likelihood that something will happen, some black swan event that'll make all your predictions moot by the end of the year. But with that, uh, Joe, kick us off. What can we expect from a South African perspective in the business rescue space and which sectors are vulnerable right now? Well, thanks very much, Michael, and good day. So I, I think that there, there are two parts to that question is what do we think is going to be happening with business rescue? And this is a question that we ask our respondents in our survey every year that we do on the restructuring industry. And last year, uh, 85% of respondents said there's going to be an increase in business rescue activity and that never materialized. So I would uh, say we're also not that good at forecasting as a, as a profession. Um, we're asking the same question again this year. And once again, we're seeing majority of respondents saying we're expecting an increase, an increase, whether it be via a formal mechanism like business rescue or, or liquidation or an informal mechanism, like a, a more of a, a turnaround led by a an, an advisor. But there's definitely a, a leaning towards there's going to be more distress in the in the market. Now, when we look at which sectors do we think that that's going to impact? I mean, there are two that sort of stand out for me. I'm interested to hear what others might have to say, but I think really impacted not just by our homegrown issues, but also by some of the macro issues at play. So, something, so a sector like automotive, for example, very reliant on the ports for imports and exports, impacted by what's happening in our local economies, impacted by load shedding. I think it's going to be a real struggle for the automotive industry. And we're seeing you know, a decline in new vehicle sales um, coming out in the January data as well. Yeah, I was just going to add that I was reading an article about affordability in the South African market, and we just haven't seen uh, salaries keep pace also with the increase in new car prices as well. And then in retail, yeah, well, well, retail affected as as you say by a fall in the real, the real average salary of a South African. So if you go back to about February twenty twenty one, that average sort of monthly salary was about sixteen thousand rand a month. That has fallen um, to in September twenty twenty three to just over thirteen thousand. So you can see that that affordability is playing a part from a real in, in a real terms perspective. So any sector that, in my opinion, is reliant on discretionary income is going to struggle as we move into 2024. Those are two, uh, I think, um, glaring sectors uh, in terms of where we might see some pain. I've been quite surprised that we've seen the resilience so far in those sectors that we have seen. Uh, So I do worry and wonder about how many companies are potentially trading that recklessly or directors may be exposing themselves to that. Anyway, Stefan, in the UK space, we, we've got another key election year ahead. Uh, what, what do you expect uh, from 2024? Yeah, thanks, Michael. I mean, from my perspective, I guess as as a Brit and now now living and practicing in South Africa, I think that there are some natural tendencies to look to the UK market and, and see what it, it may well bode for for us. The reverse is also true. I think we have vastly different economies. I think whilst we're both looking at similar levels of, of muted growth of about 1%, uh, I, I think the, the socioeconomic situation in both and the recovery of, of both post-COVID 
and 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 throughout the the uncertainty following the Ukraine war and and others is different for us than it is for for the UK. But nonetheless, I think large economy. Uh, there are some similarities that we tend to follow the trends of. Um, I, I think in in reality, I think property is is a big question mark from a, a UK perspective. They're expecting extreme headwinds in in that regard. Uh, it was interesting to see the China's Evergrande uh, finally listing towards a liquidation. I think after years of speculation as to whether or not it will get repackaged. Yeah, I think that's an important warning sign. I think in terms of the the notion of too big to fail. I think if if China's coffers won't won't cover that, uh, I think we're going to see strain in the property markets, both in the UK and and certainly in in South Africa. Outside of that, I think. UK's growth potential is is to to outstrip what it's currently forecasting. I think ours is unlikely to do so, uh, and and therefore where we think we might be seeing some serious headwinds are really with with the kind of stickiness, I suppose, of interest rates. I think there's been lots of focus at a consumer level about the expectations of of reductions in in interest rates. Uh, I think the the real view is that by 2025, we're probably going to see some improvements, but certainly not until late this year. I think the effect that will have on on a range of industries, particularly the the, the consumer, I think, as Joe alluded to, I think is, is already under pain um, in terms of salaries, but also in terms of spending power now is, is going to be really, really difficult. But I think sectors that, that we think are, are going to be hard hit are probably the industrials, uh, those with with working capital, so with the the high interest rate, the the holding cost of your working capital is much much higher than it would have been three or four years ago. Uh, and and on top of that, I think we've got supply chain issues. So I mean, we have both the the rerouting of shipping channels uh, around us that that's going to cause us, us supply chain issues. But I think also in in terms of other issues that are more localized, I think the transnet situation. The major capacity problems we've got at the ports, and and the debate whether it's going to be road or rail that is is our big infrastructure is is the one to watch for for industrials who are hugely reliant on on the transportation both to and from the ports. So no direct correlation. I think some some similarities, but I think really just quite a few unique issues that that are of are are doing. I, I think in terms of the automotive sector, I guess the question I've got is. With the the sharp shift in technology, I think in the last couple of weeks we've seen hydrogen taking the uh, the mantle already from EV. So so those that have invested heavily in EV now flexing and seeing whether they can get to hydrogen. I think the South African motor industry is an export business and and is going to have to do some serious serious work to get fit for for the OEMs to be able to continue to support them with new technologies. I think we we have a good place. Currently, but I, my question mark is: Are we good for the next five years? Yeah, and uh, only having recently seen that uh, white paper for EVs uh, published after years of uh, NAMSA calling on government to provide more policy certainty. You know, historically, it's been uh, a standout success feature of government policy in that automotive industry development program provided that certainty. Uh, much like mining, it's a very capital-intensive, long lead time um, uh, projects. These uh, for OEMs. Uh, so very interesting to see how that'll play out. Uh, Joyce, from an East African perspective, um, I, I was in Kenya last September, and uh, you know, just uh, a sense here that William Ruto was saying the right things, uh, but still 
um, some uh, doubt, as I guess, uh, wanting to see what happens rather than just the rhetoric on the ground. What's the picture looking like this year in East Africa? Thank you, Michael. So in Kenya, the big question in everyone's mind is the repayment of the Eurobond in June this year. The government is making all the right, taking all the right steps and making all the right noises. So we're not expecting any defaults in Kenya. And of course, if they do repay the Eurobond, that will maintain investor confidence in the market. At the moment, all indications from the central bank are that the economy is stable, the banking sector is stable, and I expect that to continue. Interestingly, we didn't see a great use of the rescue processes under the Insolvency Act in 2023. The highest use we've seen of the rescue processes was just coming out of COVID. Then we saw a drop and then a marginal increase last year. This year, similar to what Joe said, we do expect to see more restructuring processes being undertaken because the, the business environment is generally challenging with all the, the macro economic activity taking place. But we expect to see more informal workouts rather than formal workouts, given the trend that's been going on in the last few years. We also expect to see a push towards in updating the legislation to allow, for example, for fast-tracking administrations for companies that are in the small and medium enterprise sector. I think that's quite an interesting regulatory development uh, that uh, we, we might need to look at in South Africa again when it comes to how different companies are being affected by these various uh, local and global concerns. Maybe, Juliet, if you could kick us off, considering what we've just heard from from Joyce and Joe and Stefan and the issues that they've raised, what do you two think we can expect from a South African perspective in terms of turnarounds and the options available to companies in distressed circumstances? Because as I said earlier, I get the feeling that um, straight after COVID, the, those that were deeply in debt and deeply in trouble kind of went into business rescue quite early. And I feel that there may be a few zombie companies out there that have really just been um, getting by, maybe even bordering on, on recklessly. And if we have another really tough year, um, we're likely to see uh, an increased uh, use of uh, business rescue, for example. What do you see, Juliet, as the main options available? For what it's worth, my prediction for, for 2024 is that we're likely to see an ongoing preference for informal restructurings rather than formal processes like business rescue and liquidation. And I think, firstly, this is because lenders generally prefer a more collaborative and, and consensual approach. I think also some lenders have not had particularly positive experiences with business rescue. Um, in particular, they complain that it takes too long for these processes to complete and also that it's very expensive. Um, I think there's also still come some concern as to the, the quality and the skill sets of some BRPs. And you know, at the end of the day, Michael, trust is so critical for something like a business rescue process and where that breaks down or the lack of transparency, creditors are generally left very unhappy. However, um, implementing informal restructurings does take time and it's certainly not cheap, particularly where there are lots of professional advisors involved. And it isn't appropriate in circumstances where the financial distress is extreme and an urgent solution is required. It takes time. It isn't also appropriate where all the significant stakeholders are not on board and supportive of the process because, uh, you know, just one major creditor who isn't on board can completely thwart the process if they won't agree to to a standstill while restructuring 
restructuring terms are negotiated or if they won't agree to terms that all of the other stakeholders are, are on board with. Um, another thing I want to mention is we've also seen increasing interest in creditor compromises under Section 155 of the Companies Act. And I think that we may see more of these in 2024. Uh, the downside of, of creditor compromises is that there's no moratorium on creditor enforcement or, or action while you put in place the 155 process. And it unfortunately does take some time. That's partly because a 155 compromise requires the sanction of the court at the end of the process before it becomes effective. And as we know, court roles are somewhat clogged and it's very hard to persuade a court to hear matters on an urgent basis. So, you know, hard to say, but we estimate that even under the best circumstances, you're going to look at a two-month runway to implement a Section 155 compromise and all of that time you've got no moratorium on, on creditor action. That's quite interesting, specifically around the informal process being the preferred route, given what we saw coming out of uh, COVID and the rise of the chief restructuring officer. But I think we'll come to that. Uh, what was your, your next point going to be, Juliet? You know, it's not that there isn't a place for, for business rescues. Um, I think it is fundamentally still an, e an effective restructuring mechanism under the right circumstances. Uh, and there are instances where it is the best option. And one may be where, where creditors are about to enforce and you need the urgent protection that, that business rescue affords you. Uh, or when there just isn't time to negotiate a, co a consensual process. Um, I wanted to refer to, to the Deloitte restructuring survey last year that, that Joe obviously spearheaded. And there they referred to the fact that business rescue is suffering from a bit of an identity crisis. And what they meant by that is that so many people see a successful business rescue as meaning a process where a company or a business is actually saved, pops out of the end of the process as a solvent trading entity. But if you look at what the Companies Act says, it also contemplates that rescue can take the form of ensuring a better outcome for, for creditors and other stakeholders than liquidation would have would have resulted in. And we do see many of those being implemented. And I think we need to look at things through a slightly uh, you know, more generous lens and accept that under some circumstances, a better return for the stakeholders can still be regarded as a, as a success. Obviously, we'd like to see businesses being saved. And one of the principal reasons for that is it saves jobs. And in a, an economy like ours, where there's such a high level of unemployment, obviously saving jobs is is critical. But, um, you know, there are circumstances where, where business rescue even won't solve the situation. That's particularly so where people enter business rescue really late where there's no liquidity and no easy access to post-commencement finance. And we know that in the South African market, unfortunately, accessing that post-commencement finance remains challenging. So I hate to mention the, the dirty word of liquidation, but there are instances where that will also be the, the only way out of financial distress. And I think what we need to bear in mind is that there are some cases where liquidation is the right route, and that's particularly where there's been instances of fraud or misappropriation of assets and funds because a liquidator has has tools in his toolbox to investigate and recover assets which which are not available to to business rescue practitioners for instance and are certainly not available in a in a consensual restructuring environment and Turby, i think you probably also got some views on this yeah Juliet, I, I agree with you um i also I'm also worried, and as Michael mentioned in the beginning, I'm worried that a continuous trend for this year will be the persistence of zombie companies. 
Now, zombie companies are known as companies that earn just enough money to continue operating and servicing their debt, but are essentially financially distressed, and they continue to operate with the help of external support, such as loans, refinance arrangements, and payment holidays. Now, the term originated in Japan after the burst of the Japanese asset price bubble in 1991, where Japanese banks continued to support weak or failing firms instead of letting them go bankrupt. And to an extent, it's similar to what we experienced after COVID. I'm of the view that, that most of the zombie companies in South Africa have been financially distressed since before COVID, and that the lowering of interest rates and sympathetic market conditions during COVID allowed them to take advantage of the situation and to incur further credit at low interest rates. But now the South African companies or South African zombie companies must be unique because a hike in interest rates will normally wipe out a significant number. But what's interesting to me is that despite a hike in interest rates, we still saw a drop in the number of filings for business rescue. So we know that South Africans and South African companies are extremely resilient. And perhaps to quote Drickers Duplessis, it is as simple as concluding that they don't know what we know. Or perhaps, and similar to Japan, we are getting closer and closer to seeing the bubble bursting. But Michael, we often talk about how a delay in taking steps will hamper the chances of a business actually being rescued. And of course, one of the key benefits of early intervention is that there are more options available to the company for a successful turnaround. We've seen informal turnarounds work well in these instances, and even more so, an increase in the use of a chief restructuring officer in these informal turnaround scenarios. So Joe and Stefan, what are your thoughts on the CRO appointment route? Um, I know that both of you have experience in that apartment, and maybe we can start with Joe. And asking Joe, um, what do you think? Do you think we'll see more CRO appointments in the informal restructuring space going forward? Again, a difficult one to call because it's who is appointing CROs. And that tends to be quite lender-driven. And again, that is going to be impacted by the, what, what the results are by putting in a CRO. The, the matches where we've been involved, where we've been appointed in a position similar to a CRO, we call it a restructuring office at, at Deloitte, are all lender-driven. There has not been a single instance of a company putting up its hand and saying, I need help and advice to manage these choppy waters. So I, I would say those matters, and it's anecdotal evidence, it's the ones we've been involved with, have been more successful than formal processes like a, like a business rescue, for example. So I'd hope that we would see more of them. But Juliet mentioned two things that for me are absolutely critical, fundamental to the success of that process. And that is stakeholder buy-in, and that is stake all of the stakeholders, whether it be your financial creditors, your trade creditors, your employees, directors, shareholders, you know, unions, you, you need everybody playing together um, in order to have success during that process. Um, and critical there really is the board, because unlike a business rescue practitioner, a CRO or an advisor in that position does not control the process you still require board approval. And that for me is always where it can fall down. So you need a group of stakeholders moving in the same direction. And then you need time. You need to have sufficient runway to be able to negotiate that process such that you're not 
staring liquidity events in the face and constantly at the precipice of a business rescue. And, and those are two very difficult things to actually achieve. Uh, the stakeholder buy-in can, you know, from a crisis management perspective and getting everybody on board and creating the necessary standstills that may be necessary, that can take weeks, if not months. Yep. And all through that time, everybody is well aware of the position of the entity. And then it just takes a one creditor to step out of line and, and the process is sorted. But if you can demonstrate, and I think we can, that that process is likely to result in higher recoveries and returns for all stakeholders, then I would hope we would see a greater volume of informal restructurings, because that is the process, in my opinion, which has the, the greatest likelihood of success. That is such an interesting lesson that emerged from all of this. Stefan, would, would you agree with that uh, and the ability of the CRO to build consensus in a way that, that brings all stakeholders together? Because I, I think you have the Constantia matter and how quickly they bled key staff. So you've got to have all of your stakeholders there because if you lose your human capital, there's not much of a business case going forward. How do you view the, the role of the CRO uh, and the lessons that we can learn from this as we as we look to build on into 2024. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic, Michael. I mean, I think it's it's hotly debated at the moment. I would I would say it's almost a fixation or a fascination with with a new mantle that is is the chief restructuring officer that must be all things to all people. Um, I'm currently holding any range of of advisor lead advisory matters. I'm also a CRO in a listed environment, and and I'm also a rescue practitioner on another matter. And I think the answer for us as restructuring professionals is to pick the right remedy for the right right situation. And I think the the thought that one supersedes the other or is much better, I think, is is naive. I think we we as a team on this call are talking about where the damage is in the in the business. I mean, if it's if it's an early stages kind of warning signs in the income statement, very different to to acute cash flow issues and not being able to pay the bills at the end of the month. And and therefore the tools and the powers that you need need to be commensurate with with the situation. The other point I'll make is that on on the matter I've got as as a CRO is within that group, um, it is a group CRO function. But we have other areas where subsidiaries are in business rescue and we're managing those. We've got others that we're winding down and others that that will be part and parcel of the future of of, of the business. So I, I think it's it's a little bit one-dimensional to to imply that a CRO comes in, it's ABC PTY and and that's the job in hand. I think typically we're talking about very large situations that that warrant this ability to flex between the right process for for the right right situation. But I think also, I think it comes back to this mention about business rescue and I, I guess falling out of love with rescue and now the new new hope is is CRO. I think that, that really would, would be a naive read of the, the situation. We see plenty of good rescues. We see plenty of bad ones. We see good, good behind closed doors, informal restructuring, and we see those that don't work so well. And and I think time is, is, is the one that, that actually lets us know which of those come to pass. And and I think we shouldn't be shy of the idea that you start in one position, but the circumstances go against you and, and you might need to pivot from being CRO to to passing it on into a more appropriate environment being being rescued. But I think it, it's a maturing situation. I think I'm glad we're embracing it as an industry. 
I, I think it should be mentioned that that for 10, 20 years, I think that the rest of the world has had CROs. So it's not a, a, a new thing, but it is relatively new to us and, and therefore shouldn't be seen as the savior of all businesses being, you know, the new fixation. And, and therefore we set practitioners off against each other. Um, some of us do both. Some of us do either. I want to come back to you, Joe, just quickly. And, you know, when we look at what are those critical success factors in the informal process that have lend to CROs having relative buy-in and success, is it because it's maybe seen as a slightly less confrontational route where, you know, um, if you're a large creditor and you just see business rescue, you think, oh, you know, directors are putting up a shield. And so from the get-go, there's maybe a little bit more distrust built into the process. What do you think it is about the the CRO role that has engendered um, a higher um, tolerance for consensus seeking. I'm pondering as you speak. I suppose in the matters where we've been involved in, what has led to that being the the right process? I think that's what Stefan's you know speaking about. It's courses for courses, yeah, and there being sufficient time or perhaps the challenge is one, it's just a balance sheet issue that needs to be negotiated. And we can do that with the financial creditors around a boardroom table instead of needing to go into a rescue process. Um, Sometimes it's the industry or the sector. I mean, there's a couple where we're involved in now in the construction um, industry. And and those are very challenging to emerge from rescue, but we can solve them consensually around the table with all of the financial parties um, at play. So whether it be your bond providers, your guarantee providers, and your, your lending institutions, those are the parties which we need to um, get consensus from. And in a rescue, it becomes a very different situation and scenario with those, with those different parties. So it, it really does depend on on the individual circumstances. But I mean, I'm I'm definitely one that will say if it's meant to be a liquidation, let it be a liquidation. If it's fits the the profile for a business rescue, let it be a business rescue. But if you've got the opportunity to keep it out of rescue and try and achieve something consensually, I, I personally would always try that first, unless you need again a moratorium or you need the protections of a business rescue, but then it fits that, you know, it works in that bucket and that's where I would go. Yeah. We need to get adept to using what's most appropriate in the set of circumstances and not avoiding a process for the wrong reasons. And I think, you know, Juliet alluded to some of that, you know, a lender looking at a business rescue and perhaps saying, do I have enough competent practitioners? The process takes too long. It's too costly. Um, are those the right reasons to be avoiding it? Yeah. Should we not be trying to fix some of those fundamental? Horses for courses, I think, is a, a really strong one. But it does come down to the jockey, which is the directors in this instance, being able to take appropriate action, whatever that action is, as early on in the piece as possible. That's certainly something that's come through quite strongly in the successful rescues that we've seen, turnarounds, is that you know, interventions were um, very early on in the piece and there was still something uh, um, to salvage. And I just want to leave you with this as we wrap up. I want to leave you as a thought, and it's that we're closer to 2050 than we are to 1990. Right, now that you feel a little bit older, hopefully you also realize how quickly the world can change. And I hope you're ready to seize 
that change for change often brings with it opportunity. We're going to have to leave it there. That's all the time we have for today. Very interesting. Thank you all. Joe Mitchell Murray, Deloitte Southern Africa, Africa Turnaround and Restructuring Leader, who is joined around the table by Stefan Smith, who is a MD for restructuring at uh, Kroll, Joyce Mbuyi, a partner at the Bowman's Kenya office, uh, Toby Jordan and uh, Juliet Dahatton, who are partners at Bowman's. From me, Michael Avery, I hope you found some value in exchange for your time. Uh, Here's to see more rescue success stories in 2024. Take care. If you would like to get in touch or find out more about Bowman's, please visit bowmanslaw.com.